now we're back with Republican political consultant Brad Harold uh, for a little bit of a national perspective on the upcoming midterms. Brad, uh, welcome back to Hunkering Down. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm I'm about halfway through this coffee, Peter. So I'm going to get smarter as the podcast goes along. Well, I'll I'll let you off the hook and just say that you you stayed up late for the Braves game as they march. I mean, I think about where the Braves were midseason and now where you guys are at. And I mean, you're you pulled even. So uh, another hell of a season for the Braves. It's nice that uh, it's got to be good to be a Braves fan. Better uh, than Cardinals time. or Rays fan. I will say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. That's all right. Um, how many campaigns are you adjacent to uh, right People now? People ask me this and I really should count it. I'm probably between like races we're doing on CLF. Um, we're probably between 30 and 40. Okay. Um, you know, any, if you count CLF as campaigns. Any, uh, any insights to how you keep it all straight? Um, I mean, I keep it all straight. I, I have, I learned last cycle that if I didn't have like a really good organizational system in uh, Dropbox, it was going to be a nightmare. So I have built this organizational system that some of my other partners have kind of taken and run with that way. I always know where, you know, the last poll is and the last uh, presentation we've gotten on it. And what are all the scripts that, you know, got rejected last time that I can see, what did we shoot last time? And so that's really the way I do it. If I'm going to jump in and, you know, today's the day I'm going to write for XYZ client, you know, I can go and quickly look through the Dropbox and just be like, okay, what was the last polling? What were the scripts like we shot last time? What do those spots look like? Um, that way I can know, you know, what, what are we writing on today? Are we writing positive? Are we writing negative? Are we writing contrast? What's the, um, what's kind of the theme? And then I can keep it all straight. And then obviously my friends at um, Ad Impact are very helpful in figuring out what's actually running uh, at any one moment on the campaign. So their, their app, their website's great, but their app for the iPad is really, really great because you can just sit and look at all the ads and drop a race um, and go and see what's running and what's been running. All right, so you are, um, I mean, you're, how, what, what's the role on the Marco Rubio campaign for your consulting firm, just to get that out of the, the way? Yeah, we're doing the TV. I mean, we've, um, uh, my firm has always done the TV, Heath and Mallory and Todd before I joined the firm. Um, you know, did his race in 2010 and Mallory and Heath have known Marco for a long, long time. So we're doing the TV. We're doing, we're making all those beautiful commercials you're watching. Uh, all right. So let's focus in on that race. I, I have a, like a cartoon that I, when I'm doing my presentations, uh, have our uh, editorial cartoon is kind of like draw cartoons to tie up with my speeches. And I have Rubio kind of like holding off Val Demings as a as kind of a paper tiger um, that I feel like I, I just feel like, yeah, there's a lot of money raised. And yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of like, you know, profiles and national media publications. But like when you get on the ground in Florida, like when I look around in St. Petersburg and in Tampa Bay and I know that yard signs don't vote, but I actually love yard signs. I don't see any. Val Demings yard signs. And I know it's just a Senate campaign. It's not a local race. I know that's harder, but it's like, I just don't see any presence of it. And so I'm going to serve it up to you and say, I feel like she's a little bit of a, uh, a paper tiger. I don't think 
I wouldn't say she's a paper tiger. I mean, I think last time I was on air and we talked about Marco, I told you I thought Val's a really good candidate. I still think she's a really good candidate. I think she's her background, um, where she's from in the state, uh, like serve her really well in a statewide campaign. I think two things have happened. One, um, I think we were really smart to get out and define her early. Um, she tried to spend early because she didn't have a primary, you know, we didn't have a primary either, but, but she didn't have a primary. So she was able to go up and start trying to define herself early. We made the strategic decision and Marco was really smart about this. Don't let her go out and define herself in a vacuum. Um, so we were able to do that. I think that was a big mistake we made, frankly, in, in 2018 with Ron's race. Um, and we saw that we kind of let Gillum define himself in a vacuum, um, for about a month and a half in the general. Um, and it was really tough to kind of claw that back. So that was something we learned, um, from 2018 that we tried to do. And then look, I just think once we, the Democrats as a whole, I think when you look back at the story of this campaign, the the story is going to be the Democrat party as a whole made the strategic decision. And, um, after the Dobbs decision, really after the Dobbs leak, um, that they were going to make this race about abortion. And I think we're going to look back at the summer as they spent two months and probably half a billion dollars on television advertising talking about abortion. And this race was about inflation. And I think it gave them a bump and it made all the races look closer than they really were um, at the end of last month. But I think you're starting to see um, the real polling average shake out. And I think that's playing out in Florida, you know, both both the statewide races and on the local and congressional stuff. I see. All right. So I, I agree with you about like Demings and like the definition, like um, the it's almost I, nothing is out of no, nothing I've seen was out of bounds. Like this isn't like Max Cleland stuff where you're like, um, you know, this decorated war hero is a terrorist. Um, thank you, Rick Wilson. Um, but getting her defined as this fervent, you know, socialist supporter uh you know was effective if nothing else brutally effective um and i i will i think like the only thing that i could say like my thesis about rubio and you can argue back on this is like i feel like the republican base is maybe like five or six points less excited about him than they are desantis and like so in a close race does that matter um no, I mean, I've like, I, I think that is kind of a media narrative, quite frankly. Okay. I mean, I, the, the electorate in Florida is so polarized that uh, we have seen in none of our, and in, in all the private polling we have done. And even if you sit and you look at the public polling, like Marco and Ron's numbers are very similar. Marco's actually conservative number is very similar to Ron's. I know that sounds incredible. Um, Ron has a higher favorability in some corners of the state, but a lot of that is because look, he's, he's been in the news basically nonstop for the last two years. Um, but I think Republicans at least, you know, were reminded again when Marco's campaign got up and running, like Marco's no shrinking violet. I mean, these people, um, Marco was, you know, Marco was where Ron is now in 2012. I mean, they still remember that just because of the Trump race, they still, they haven't forgotten that Marco is this, you know, conservative campaigner. And so I think all that stuff has come back. I, I think ultimately they will not, there will not be a ton of separation between 
uh, Marco and Ron on the final ballot when it's all said and done. Got it. I um, I also think, let me say this. I'll also back to Val. I also, I know this is <laughs> Michelle listens to the pod. She's not going to like this, but Marco is running against a much tougher opponent. And now that doesn't matter as much for the Republican base, obviously, but I think for the overall electorate, like Val Demings is a much tougher candidate than Charlie is this cycle. This is the, you know, I've seen many Charlie campaigns now, and I think this is the worst Charlie campaign I've seen. I think he, you know, I got nothing against Charlie, but I think this is a campaign that did not fit his narrative at all. And I think we're seeing that play out. I, I, Charlie's just a man for a different season at this point. And it's just clear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and it's, he's not disgusted with it, but it's just like the, the politics that he came up with um, just, just, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, not in Florida at least. And so it's like, um, I mean, it doesn't even really exist in Tampa Bay uh, anymore. And so you're just seeing a guy like, I, you know, I, I just started playing tennis again and I've got this like young instructor who's like really kind of showing me like how antiquated my game was. Cause I played last time I played was literally like 15, 20 years ago. And this is like right at the end of Pete Samper. So it was still the serve and volley era, but the mm-hmm. players and the technology got so much better that it became just, you know, these guys w- w- look at where these guys are when they're being served to, they're like six feet off the, off the baseline. And it's because these guys are so powerful now. And so the game, you can't, you can't run a 40 yard dash to the line to serve and volley anymore. Um, and so like the game has just completely changed. And like Charlie, I will say, I think he ran a very good primary campaign, especially for a white man in a democratic primary. Um, and I will say like <clears throat> the argument the Chris people will make is we are being outspent 10 to one and we're all, we're within the margin of error. And I kind of say to that, I'm like, that's like after a boxing match when you're like, well, my opponent, you know, he was taller and stronger and he hit harder. And yeah, I lost, but you know, look at all those advantages he's got. He's like, well, then you maybe shouldn't have been in the ring. Uh, I'll give you a better analogy. It's like Kathy Kennedy looking at the box office returns for Last Jedi and defending it and saying like, well, look how much hundreds of millions of dollars we've made. And it's like, yeah, Kathy, every Star Wars movie makes that. The problem is you're making less than all the other ones. Listen, don't get me started on Andor, which I love. And I just watched the last episode last night. Um, I'm just trying to piss Ryan Smith off when he listens to this. (laughs) He will defend any, any, like any Star Wars movie. It's just like, no, I mean, he is... Like when they talk about Star Wars fanboys, obviously it's him, but it's like like he allows for no, like he's just like, no, Solo's an incredible movie. Yeah, there's no room for dissension in Ryan's Solo. Star Wars universe. Solo is not an incredible movie. It's good. So I think I think Charlie is um Charlie's version of moderate politics was the version of moderate politics that won 15 years ago. What you're seeing now, I would give you like an analogous, the best, the best run Democrat campaign in this cycle is Tim Ryan in Ohio. Um, Tim is running, you know, he's running, I think their best candidate. He's their best candidate in the midterms in a swing state. He is the one that um, I think, you know, I I think ultimately we're going to win Ohio, but you see that we're having to spend a bunch of money there in a state that Trump won big in a midterm with an unpopular president. We should, we should be walking in that state, Um, but we're having to spend money there because of Tim Ryan's personality and his campaign. But Tim is not, you know, Tim is not running the like 
I'm going to work across the aisle. And like, I mean, that's, that is the way Charlie is running his campaign. Tim Ryan is running a blue collar. Look, these guys sold us out. And I know, I know Ohio is a little bit different, but it's not totally different. I mean, so many of the people in our state now came from Ohio. Yeah. So um, I think Tim Ryan's kind of brash, you know, you know, dropping some, uh, dropping a little bit of uh, 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 curse words every now and then and kind of blue collar in it up, I think is the way you win as a Democrat in this cycle. And I frankly think it's not just Charlie, a lot of the incumbent senators and congressmen who've been, you know, who've been in these districts and are now redistricting to Trump seats and are trying to fight for their lives. I think the ones that are going to lose are the ones who are running the squishy moderate stuff from 20 years ago, which is what Charlie's doing. And I think, I think that the electorate has changed that middle of the electorate has changed. Mm. It's not the same. Um, it's not the same middle of the electorate that it was in 2004 that we were fighting over, you know, and our, our compassionate conservatism and all that stuff. It is a completely different middle of the electorate. Now it's much, much, much more blue collar. They have been dragged to the Republican party um, because of Trump or dragged to, to consider the Republican party because of Trump instead of the suburban white voters who are now just voting Democrat. The, I, I, and Rubio is the one who's been kind of out front on this, like about the, we need to build the uh, working class coalition of whites and Hispanics. Um, and that's the, that's the future governing majority. And I, I, um, I, you know, it's almost like liberal whites then are, are, are left with, I don't even know what their coalition is then because it's like, you know, just the black vote is not enough to win general elections. And there just aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough college educated white people in these swing states uh, to win statewide races. I mean, it just, you know, it's like you, the, 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 uh, the more elite you get, the more you're going to gravitate to a bluer city, if not even overseas at this point. I mean, it's a it's a um, a fundamental shift the way the working class vote has just been upended. Although at the same time, we see the resurgence of unions. Um, you know, this has probably been the best year for union politics I, I, since like they made the Jimmy Hoffa movie. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, so what let me because I'm keeping these. Kind of close. Let me hit you real quick. Give me a spread on DeSantis, Christ. Like, where do you think that that is? It is it a touchdown? Is it is it more than a touchdown? Yeah, are you setting are you setting the over under at a touchdown? I'm going to set the over under right now at a touchdown. Well, if I was the book, I would say seven point five, just so that you'd have to you know get there or not. But yeah, I, I think. Well, it's, luckily in politics, we can hit. Uh, we, yeah. we don't have to hit integers, so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, I would I would take the over. I would take the over in the statewide races, frankly. I just think um, I think the demographics in the state have drastically changed. I think, you know, all the reasons we talked about Charlie's you know, electoral politics not matching up to the state right now. Um, and look, I just think I think a lot of people, the last hope for the Democrats was that Ron was going to screw up the hurricane. And I don't think he has. And I think he's done a good job. I think a lot of people have tried to make hay about it, but I think, you know, what I've seen in the polling is people think he did a good job. Um, and so uh, I think now that he's over that last hurdle, I just think what the next four weeks, every week, you're going to read it now. 
every week is going to get a little bit worse for Democrats nationally. And the environment is going to get a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And I think we're going to end up in a situation. We've probably got like an R plus three generic ballot. Um, and look, if, if we get an R plus three generic ballot on election day, I mean, you know, winning by a touchdown is, is going to be an easy move. So I, I will say, I still think the Democrats hold the, the U S Senate. I, I do think the quality of candidate issue is just so horrible for, um, for the for the republicans i'm i just i don't i you know it's your it's your territory better than mine but i just i can't see herschel walker getting a lot across the goal line i mean i guess yeah but even if we don't win we don't need georgia to win i think i think no everybody is now admitting that we are going to flip nevada and um and look, if we flip Nevada, I think we're going to hold on to all this stuff. I think Fetterman's, the best days of Fetterman's campaigns are behind him. Um, and, you know, I'm no fan of Oz, obviously did the primary against him up there, but I think he's going to win. And so I think we hold Pennsylvania and Ohio, and I think we flip Nevada, and there it is. That's 51 right there. Yeah, that's and 51. Then, yep. And now you, start, now you start talking about, well, what happens in Georgia? New Hampshire is in play. You know, they're spending a bunch of money in, um, they're starting to spend money in Arizona again, so Blake could win. Um, so look, I, I think 51, I don't think it's going to be, you know, there was talk at the beginning of the cycle, if it's a really good cycle, you know, our best case scenario was 54. Um, I don't think we're going to get to 54, um, but we only got to flip one. You yeah. flip one and we got 51. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's going to be sympathy for Fetterman out of this situation over the last week, and it'll hold him up for five to seven more days like he like i feel like that's a run out the clock situation i just feel like he's probably up right now three or four um and like i, I listen i mean i can see where he can lose that race but it's just like if he can if he can somehow get to like halloween and not collapse and maybe even get some sympathy like hey are they picking on this guy or you know that kind of thing i don't know um but, and I will also say, well, you know, I, I see, I could talk about this all day. Uh, anything down ballot you're seeing in Florida that you want to tout? Um, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting again to see what the Miami races look like. Um, you know, I'm not doing a ton of stuff down there, the cycle, but, uh, Miami was such, I mean, I kept joking on election night, like anytime I think tonight may be going bad, I just keep looking at the numbers in Miami and realizing what this means for the rest of Florida for the next generation. If we can continue to move um, second generation Cuban voters into our camp and non-Cuban Hispanics into our camp in Miami in the way they move in the last two elections, it's going to be really tough for Democrats to win statewide in Florida. And so um, I'm going to be interested to watch that to see if that trend kind of continues. Um, obviously got a big state Senate race down there. Um, uh, so we'll see what happens there. The congressional races, you know, obviously we're doing Muriel Byer Salazar. I think she's in really good shape, but, but that's going to affect us. And she's really appealing to those, um, to that electorate. So that's going to be the big thing I'm watching. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep the Miami Dade numbers pulled up on my computer. I may not see any results until 11 o'clock at night, but I'm going to keep them pulled up. You know, don't tell James Blair I said this, but I still think Lynn pulls it out over Luna, despite the the districts. Uh, I think you're crazy. All right. I mean, uh, on that, you know, what else do I need to say? We avoided talking about Heat 2. That's for the next episode sometime around. Uh, so bummed out I missed that. What a, I mean, what a mess. 
uh i mean you 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 didn't get to hang out you didn't get to be in the magazine with like the heat the heat huge pictures i mean it was fantastic Brad i Harrell, had so many thoughts i i appreciate you coming on i know you're busy uh we will talk to you again maybe towards the end of the month and get one more uh check in to see how things are going nationally i appreciate you coming on cool thanks peter all right man everyone's favorite political consultant and Halloween decorator, Anthony Pettisini. How are you? I'm just looking at the Halloween decorations. So whose Halloween decorations are more insane, yours or mine? Oh, definitely mine. <laughs> um, I figure like we should one year just like join forces or something like that and just like build I our own make a spooky Disney. I can make a spooky Disney Halloween. It's funny, like people, like they just don't, I guess they just don't know how much time goes into it in a way like you know like you just are collecting so much stuff over years and it's like well why don't you guys mix it up i'm like because we've we've invested like 10 years of into disney halloween at this point i'm like this is my third year of skeleton halloween at the house and i've added probably five things this year um and they're ridiculously expensive items but they're like Mm -hmm. items and the people i had families stopping in the middle of the day yesterday the kids get out of the minivan they take a picture in front of the 14 foot skeleton and they leave it's weird that is one of the cool new trends is the big skeleton thing like the big like i mean it, well, i've it, got a big who, skeleton i've got the grim reaper on a horse that breathes fire now and i've got the uh the the guy the what's the old uh, roman god that takes you across the river sticks hades i got hades i got hades with a lantern and he has smoke coming out of his eyes it's so cool well the 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 horseman who breathes fire that that's a fitting metaphor for your political operations uh, right I, I, mean, guess, I guess so i don't know read the sarasota herald tribune today that's what they said oh did i ha- oh man i didn't get into it yet um now i gotta go click on it but you're you are busier usually in the primary than the general or is it just a different kind of game it's a different game i think that um you know i think it's easier to beat democrats than it is to beat up on ourselves we tend we tend to be harder on ourselves as republicans than than on the democrats but this year is kind of different. Um, you know, we've seen remarkable success in places we probably shouldn't be having success right now. Um, you know, and I know that that you probably will well, ruffle your feathers with this, but Charlie Chris is the Democrats' worst nightmare on the ballot. There's no coattails. There's no ripple. There's just it's like the hurricane coming south of Tampa. It's sucking all he's sucking all the water out of the bay for Democrats. And uh, I mean, we're just we're we're having we're having really good luck with our messaging everywhere and. We got hardworking candidates. We raise more money. I think the as I've said on this show before, the the Republican campaign apparatus is alive and well in, in Florida, and it's it is in high gear right now. Yeah, I uh, there's no one looking forward to November 9th uh, more than me. Uh, Tom Piccolo may be ahead of you. <laughs> well, Tom's going to be able to celebrate some wins on uh, November 8th. I'm going to be waking up November 9th. I'm going to you know, it's not that. Like, listen, I'm going to vote for Charlie. I love Charlie. I I don't I've not told anybody to vote for Charlie. And I'm not like, you know, the last thing that I've written about the race is that it's kind of over. No, yeah. it is over. Yeah. Um, and that's tough for me to do. Uh, it does me no favors, you know, with uh, Michelle. But, you know, I can't not. I mean, it's like I can either, you know, offer color commentary that you can trust or or not. And so but I just like I also 
like it's just not a fun race either. Like the 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 financial difference. Like you turn on any television, you know, into one. Yeah, it's just it's just not enjoyable. Um, there's no debates. There's not. It, it just it's just pound. And at this point, also a lot of the state is recovering from a hurricane. You know, Jacob mm-hmm. Ogles, who I know you really well. I know you know, and I know you know Southwest Florida. He was just down there to check on his house, and he's like, "Man, it is. You have no idea how much worse it is than what." The cameras are showing because the cameras can only get so far. You can only take a TV truck so far. Um, and he's what, just like, the way, back. the way it was described to me by someone who was, um, who was down there helping all the time was the third day after the hurricane or the, sorry, the seventh day after the hurricane was when you get off of the helicopter, you smell death. Oh, and that, should, that shouldn't happen anywhere. Like that's unbelievable to me. All right, so, so many words to describe it. You really feel bad for, for Southwest Florida right now. You do. And like, so I, I think you may have saw on Facebook, like, but like a year and a half ago for Michelle's 40th, we went down to, um, we like took a, like a, we chartered a boat down to that area. Um, and I just did not realize how gorgeous some of those places were. Cabbage Key and, you know, uh, Venice. And Boca Grand is a hidden gem that no one should ever know about. No, I, I, and I mean, you just jump out and you just get off the boat and just swim like everywhere and everybody's swimming in the middle of these incredible emerald green waters. And I'm just like, man, I don't know that we're ever going to get to see that again or not for, for well, several that, years. It, it may be better because no, no one's going to be there for a, a little while. So yeah. the environment will heal itself. I mean, look, the, 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 the environment is resilient. Floridians are resilient. Uh, in, in 10 years, that place will be back. Look at Charlotte County. Charlotte County got whacked with Charlie. It's fine. It got whacked again with with this one, with Ian. It'll be fine again. We'll be we'll make it. We'll make it back, and we'll build we'll build stronger. Were you just gonna say build back better? Yeah, I almost did. I you almost I, that would that would have been a, a a meme, right? I would have clipped that out and just kept playing that over <laughs> and over again. All right, Go you know myself. Southwest Florida. Is there? Uh, I mean, you work a lot of races down there. Anything interesting going on, or was all that decided mostly in the primaries? I think it was all decided in the primaries. I think the the interesting area right now is when you have Tallahassee, this Corey Simon race, I think is very interesting. Yeah. I think the Janet Cruz, Jay Collins race is very interesting. And I think the I-4 corridor is very interesting. I think everything else is kind of deciding itself. I, I mean, the governor could win Miami-Dade County. That's how interesting this election is. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll start with Corey Simon, Loran, Osley. I, look, I'll, I'll give you my general thesis, which is I think they're going to have to make a decision. Do we save Loran or do we save Janet? And even at that, I don't know that that is even um, if that's a, a, a possibility. They might. I mean, they, do they have the money to save either is the question. Yeah. Yeah. And I just figure I just I feel like so somebody told me that we both talked to is just like, man, the thing with Corey Simon was is people were taking the meetings, you know, out of like respect for the other Republicans and stuff like that. But once they got into the meeting and then he left, they're like, I'm voting for that guy. I mean, like that, right. this, they just say he is so good one-on-one and in small groups. Uh, he's already got this, obviously the citywide need. But you have the redistricting that has changed the district to give it a, a lean right. I mean, it's not a left leaning seat. And when you have a vote record like Osley does, where she's been, you know, a left wing partisan hack for her party, because she could be now that's not the case. I mean, look, I made the argument before uh, Ashley Guy got thrown off the ballot that we could have we could have t- taken Allison Tan out and we can. That seat is in play. 
Um, all of these seats in a year like this where the governor is doing so well, where you have Biden literally as an anchor on the ticket that is unbelievable. Um, we can we can do some things as Republicans that we normally couldn't do. And we're doing them in a lot of areas. All right. So then is there let me ask, let me challenge you and say, is there any place where the Democrats should look for hope? Like, where are you? I mean, do you have any area where you're worried I mean, about? If I were the I'm not worried about anything right now, which is strange. Um, but what worries me is that the Democrats catch on one day to what we know that they don't. And and I'm not going to say it on the program, but they literally have missed the boat. A huge boat has gone by and and, and we've dodged a huge bullet as Republicans and in, in an area in Florida. And they just don't get it. And I'm glad that they don't. Talk to me about, um, you know, one race uh, that is, you know, it's important to me. It's our area. And I think I think you're working on the Audrey Henson, uh, Lindsey yeah. Cross race. How's that one shaping up? I think Audrey Henson is very much in the mix. I, I think it's very much. In I the saw mix. her walking, you know, I'm in Shore Acres. I, saw, I mean, I can look out right now out the window and I saw not that Lindsay isn't strong in this area, but I did see Audrey, you know, walking literally herself. I mean, this, so th- this is a great example, right? This is a seat we should not have any business being in, but the Republican is in play. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that go into, into that seat specifically. One, that you have a large group of independents in St. Petersburg who, who are usually leaning to the left that are kind of sick of leaning to the left, and now they're kind of leaning to the right. And then Audrey isn't a bad candidate. I mean, she uh, she walks her ass off. She raises money. Um, she does what she needs to do, and she has a great background. I mean, she's got two moms. She grew up dirt poor. She knows what it's like to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and make something of your life. I think that's resonating among that, you know, there's a working class segment of that district too. Yeah. I think that resonates. It strolls into the middle of uh, uh, the middle part of Pinellas. It's not, you know, just. Uh, what is it? Kenwood, Gilman. Yeah. It's not all those coastal elites living on the water with their Halloween right. decorations and their liberal politics. <laughs> you know, fuck those guys. Um, their streets do flood when it rains an inch. <laughs> um uh, all right. I, the tough one for us, I think, I know, like, I, it's the Gina Cruz, Jay Collins race, because, you know, we both love Anna and, you know, we, we talk to those folks all the time, but, you know, the demographics are changing in that district. Uh, make well, the Hispanics, case- have, Hispanics have left the Democrats, right? And, and so if you can't, if you can't run up a 70 point score in the middle part of that Senate district in, in West Tampa, you can't win it as a Democrat. Okay. Because the south part of the district is going Republican. The north part of the district is going Republican. Um, you know, I think Janet, here's what I think Janet's problem is. When she's home, Janet likes to say she's a middle of the road, uh, get it done kind of lady. But when, And I love Janet. But when she gets to Tallahassee, she votes the leftist policies ever. And I think that the, that they're doing a really good job at um, at emphasizing that in parts of the district that needed to be emphasized. The other thing that I'll give you is this. The Democrats are attacking Republicans everywhere on abortion. No one cares. The only people that care about abortion are people that were voting for the Democrats anyway. So keep preaching to your own. I've got in, in South Tampa against Karen Pittman, Peter, I've got, um, what's her name running against her? Jen McDonald sending uh, abortion mail to Republican women. Mm. Keep wasting your money. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, I'm getting everybody on the record on this one. Give me your final score. Uh, final margin of victory uh, in the governor's race. Um, I'm setting it at DeSantis plus seven right now. Um, DeSantis 6.6. 6. 
Oh, you're coming. Okay. All right. Got it. I, uh, I appreciate it. All right, Anthony, always good to check in with you. We'll check in maybe one more time before Halloween. We hope we can get an AP sighting over. You can say hello to your, uh, God. I, I need to come say happy birthday. You do. You do get over here. We, we'd love to see you. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks for coming on Thank you guys. All right. Bye. Okay, we're going to switch it up now. We've had back-to-back uh, -back Republicans uh, forecasting uh, that the uh, world is, or the, the sky is falling for Democrats, bringing on one of the top uh, Democratic consultants, maybe had one of the best primary cycles of, of anyone, uh, Michael Worley. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Um, so we had Brad Harold and Anthony Pettacini on right before you, and, you know, they're, we're, all basically setting the governor's race at, you know, DeSantis plus seven and Rubio winning close to that. Do you see anything uh, that would indicate that they're wrong? No, <laughs> no, I, I think we're going to have a rough cycle. I think that there are a couple of elements that are playing into it right now that make things really tough for Democrats. The first is that the further we get away from the Roe versus Wade decision, the less enthusiasm you're seeing not only among the base but among those npa voters that we thought were really going to be swayed by the abortion issue now this is a big gamble that a lot of the campaigns are taking and i've seen people show different data there are you know there's one camp that believes that the abortion issue is really going to move the needle for democrats and that is our only hope really going into november then there's another camp that believes that yeah the issue is important but what you're seeing is a lot of NPAs, particularly Hispanic NPAs, they're indicating the abortion issue is important. They don't want to have abortion bans with no exceptions. However, issues about inflation, economic issues, those are really taking the front seat right now. And I think that in terms of the governor's race, you know, one of the big challenges that you're going to have in this race is that you have a governor who was popular a few weeks ago, and then there was a natural disaster, and he's done pretty well based on, you know, both sides really weighing his uh, performance, even the president weighing in on his performance. And that's going to help his numbers. I mean, the big October surprise for a lot of these campaigns ends up being a hurricane and how a governor deals with a hurricane. And so far, it has been dealt with appropriately in a way that I think is going to help DeSantis. I think that Demings will be much closer. That will be a race where you really have to keep your eye on it, because I think that Deming's background in law enforcement really is something that makes a persuasive case uh, for a lot of NPAs and even some soft Republicans out there, especially contrasting with this message that Rubio really hasn't been there, hasn't been uh, present representing Florida. So that, that's going to be a big problem. But, you know, Demings has a huge uphill battle despite her financial advantage. I think that that's going to be a very close race. But I think the governor's race is going to be uh, a, a much wider spread. Yeah, I mean, if you've got it, it did me no favors uh, writing it. But, you know, as I said, to, you know, Brad and Anthony, like when Biden, you know, basically endorsed DeSantis's response to the hurricane and DeSantis deserves it. I mean, like 
I will say like, you know, when you have a hurricane response, it is actually a slow, slow growing. People know this. I mean, these things, this is going to, it's going to take months to get the debris out of there, et cetera. But the symbolic things like getting that, that temporary bridge up, getting the Sanibel causeway where you could, you know, I mean, my God, the, the optics of seeing those uh, response vehicles go over the Sanibel causeway. I don't care if it was a stunt or not. I, I wish there was, a, I wish Charlie Crist had that kind of stunt. You're absolutely right. You're, you are absolutely right. And when I saw that, you know, ironically, what I thought too was like COVID when China built that hospital in three days. Yeah. You know, like it felt like all of a sudden you have a government in the face of an emergency that's really moving and that's really making things happen. And that's what people wanted to see, especially coming after all these images of, you know, just the devastation uh, on that coast. And so, you know, keep in mind, I hate to to put it in this context, but another element of it is this is a critical region for the governor um, in terms of his electoral power. He has to make sure that his popularity remains sky high in this region. And so having a strong response to this natural natural disaster is in his interest electorally. Um, and he's doing a really, really good job at it. And I think that that is one of the challenges that we have. And by the way, you know, you, you talk about, you know, wanting uh, Charlie to have that moment. I think one of the issues that the Chris campaign is dealing with right now is they spent the entire primary running on elect electability. And once you get past that argument, the problem that you face is that when you're dealing with a popular incumbent, the electability argument on its own no longer can get you across the finish line. You have to be campaigning on something more than I can beat Ron DeSantis. I am better than Ron DeSantis. And that was one of the problems that you had in the primaries, that there wasn't a lot of time by the Chris campaign explaining, you know, what the big ideas were going to be if he becomes governor and more of a focus on why I am the best person to win in November. And I think that when you're running an effective campaign, it's not all about your opponent, because when you make it all about your opponent, you are basically allowing your opponent to dictate the terms of the race. And that's a real dangerous move, no matter if you're running for dog catcher or governor, you have to be running on your own ideas and your own message that is separate from your opponent that stands on its own two legs. And I think that um, Charlie had some trouble doing that simply because he had a contentious primary and he felt the electability argument was the best way to make it to the primary. But unfortunately, I think it's going to hamstring him in the general. And we're seeing a little bit of that right now. But I don't care where you look, you know, up and down the state in polling. Charlie is way behind Demings. If you take a look at the head to head. Yeah. And that's a real problem. All right. And I, I think if if you got. All right. So that's three for three now on uh, Charlie's going to lose by about a touchdown. Uh, so I don't think we're going to get anybody. Uh, <laughs> Some contrasting I, I, views. <laughs> I, I will say this. Like I bought Charlie on Predict It at like 11 cents. And I think he's still at like 12 cents. And I'm like. You know what? It's only like $850, but this is not going to turn into $8,500. I'm grabbing this back. I'm keeping my money in on Demings just because I feel like, again, I got her at like 15 cents on the dollar. And so it's like, I feel like there may be like, there's got to be some surge at some point that gets her up, you know, to 30 and then I'll sell then. But well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of uh, races that I think that you should be betting on. Okay. Give it to us. Annette Tadeo. I think Annette might have some juice in that race. Okay. I have seen a lot of numbers recently that indicate that she outperforms Demings and Christ. 
okay. uh, in a big way, which is what you have to do. You know, if you're a Democrat in Dade, you know, you have to perform a little bit better than the top of the ticket in order to win some of these races. And um, she's doing it right now. You know, I've seen a lot of numbers that show that it's a very close race, perhaps closer um, than some of the Republicans thought it was going to be. And, you know, Annette has a lot of popularity among these NPA Hispanics. And that's who you got to reach. And having someone that has the ability to go on Spanish radio and television um, and, and be so effective is really, really important for a candidate in that part of town. And I think that she's uh, really making some waves there. And so my hope is that if Annette is able to pull out a win, perhaps there's some coattails there that some of the local candidates will be able to ride um, that will help beyond what normally the top of the ticket would do uh, to help their chances electorally. But Annette is definitely one that I think uh, might have some, some juice there. Uh, another one that's very interesting to look at is uh, HD113, which is uh, AJ D'Amico against Vicky Lopez. Yeah, I like that. That's an interesting race. Fascinating race. It was not a race that we <laughs> thought was going to be this close. It's a race the Democrats had to spend a lot of money on to defend that seat that, quite frankly, I don't think anyone was expecting that we were going to have to uh, spend that kind of money to defend the seat. But with that being said, if we lose 113, we're going to have a real tough night all around the state. If we win 113, I think it will stem the bleeding. And yeah, we're probably going to take some hits at the top of the ticket, but perhaps it won't be so bad down ballot. Perhaps we're going to do a little bit better on the Senate side. Perhaps we'll do a little bit better on the House side than we imagined. I, I do think that it's becoming a little bit of a bellwether uh, a race right now. And you have another one, um, Andy Thompson up in Boca. That's another seat that I think is going to be um, one to watch in terms of what happens there. That's, I believe it's Emily Slosberg's uh, former seat. And the Republicans are making a big push for that seat. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. But um, those are two races that I think the outcome is really going to dictate the outcome uh, statewide because those are the ones that are getting really competitive on the on the south side of the state. That's the kind of down ballot intel we want for uh, the statewide audience listening to this. Uh, can you take it one more step down? I know you work you work a lot of like municipal and like yeah. county stuff in South Florida. Anything anything just to keep an eye on? Uh, yeah, on for sure. Um, there, there's there's a few that are really interesting um, in South Florida right now. The, the biggest I would say is Miami Beach. Miami Beach, you have a fascinating situation. Um, you know, my, my friend, former client, Mark Samuelin, unfortunately passed away uh, uh, this past year, and it was tragic and unexpected. And it's opened up a special election uh, on the Miami Beach Commission. And you have five candidates running right now, but there are two candidates really that are the big ones in this race. On one side, you have Laura Dominguez. She is the life partner of Mark Samuelin, very well-versed in local issues, very well-known among the local activists. And then you have Sabrina Cohen. Sabrina Cohen yeah. uh, lost the ability to walk at the age of 14 in a terrible car accident. Uh, since then, she's become a huge advocate uh, for disability access, disability rights, and also has been just very involved in local politics at the municipal level in Miami Beach. Um, she helped open up a uh, an accessible park, really a world-class uh, park for accessibility to make sure that all people uh, can enjoy uh, Miami Beach's parks and recreation. Um, two very well-funded campaigns, highly competitive, 
But there's also the backdrop of these referendums that are happening on the beach because Miami Beach changed the rules and they said, if you want an increase in your Florida area ratio, meaning that you want to knock down a condo and make it bigger or something like that, you need to get voter approval. So there are eight different referendum issues on the ballot in Miami Beach this cycle, and there is a ton of campaigning around them right now. So I think that that is one particular race where small community, small municipality, big money, big competition, and it's likely going to go to a runoff because there happens to be a another candidate in the race that shares the last name Cohen. His name is Stephen Cohen. He's not really actively campaigning, um, but his name will be on the ballot. And so the likelihood of this election going to a runoff is pretty high. So there's going to be a lot of drama that you're going to see there unfolding past Election Day. December 3rd is the runoff schedule. So the election never ends in Florida is what never ends. Thank God, by the way. Thank God. It it keeps us going, right? That's Uh, right. I mean, you're known for your digital expertise. Uh, 20 seconds. Anything fascinating you in the the digital advertising space? Any trends that are sticking out um, as you're working through this election cycle? Yeah, a lot of snake oil around connected TV. You got to be really careful um, when your vendor starts pitching connected TV. You need to ask questions. You need to ask a lot of questions. Um, What we have seen this cycle is a lot of vendors um, selling connected TV as a way to do digital the same way that you do television. The problem is the match rates on connected TV in terms of voter targeting are very, very low. And you have a lot of people that are selling ads not on the big apps, that you know you would normally see at Paramount Plus, Hulu, AMC, CNN, those kind of apps, but rather on a lot of these crappy streaming apps that you've never heard of, um, that are consuming a lot of the impressions and a lot of the money that you're spending on connected TV. So I would say be very careful. Make sure that you're not missing the fundamentals. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Those are still the key channels for digital to be reaching voters during this season. And if your campaign is ignoring those and putting all of your money in the connected TV basket, you need to be asking yourself what the strategy there really is. All right. This has been fascinating. I need to get you back on uh, maybe one more time before the election. Absolutely. And then sounds like it. I'm going to have to get you in going into December just to do uh, a recap of these cool runoffs that uh, are, are, you know, that's what we live for is big money, small races. Absolutely. Uh, that's the good stuff. All right, man. Michael Worley, uh, you know, like I said, this is this is a guy that had a great primary. Sounds like he's off to a great general. Pay attention to what he's writing, what he's if you see MD, MDW on the uh, expenditures on a campaign finance report, you can pretty much say that that's a serious candidate. Um, thanks for coming on this morning. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. guest uh and this pod is my dear friend uh the person who kind of like spurs me to do podcasting because uh like i always say to him like we'll have he travels a lot and we'll tape 50 minutes of a conversation just talking about different races and i'm like man we should have just pressed the record button and just published that steve vancor how are you i'm good man i'm good uh it's, <laughs> we're in countdown mode now aren't we 
We are. It, you're it, so there's always that point where like you're not allowed to joke anymore, right? Like you're we're at you yeah, know, I'm never very good at that. <laughs> you're you're getting close to like the cutoff point where like, hey, no, that's not funny anymore. Like you can't tell me, like you can't tell me that you forgot the disclaimer on the direct mail. Like that that joke that joke's fine in September. We're getting to that point where no no joke no joke rules in effect. Yeah, no fucking with me. Um, so the three previous people basically were all you know Desantis by a touchdown. Rubio could be close, but probably not. You see anything? Uh, you do a lot of polling around the state. Do you see anything that would suggest otherwise? No, I don't. In fact, as you as you as you continue to move forward, you're always looking for trends, right? And so. Again, Democrats peaked in September. Uh, real, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm over uh, the Dobbs decision. You know, we 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 were going around in May. You and I were talking about this, and I had given a couple of presentations to clients about what I call my vectors. Right, where, where are things pointing? Who's got more money? Who's got more national trade wins? Who's got you know Biden's underwater? The economy's in the in the dumps price of gas going up. There wasn't a single vector that I could point to that was that was blowing in the direction for the Democrats. So they had these this strong headwind. Along comes Dobbs at the end of June and suddenly and the Democrats seem to be sustaining it. You saw enthusiasm gap numbers close. In fact, the Democrats were more enthusiastic for a minute there. You saw money start to level out for a minute. And then at some point, I guess the constancy of the news about the economy, the constant annoyance of inflation and all those things are driven in large effect by things outside of our government's control, but happening nonetheless. And so I'm back to watching the impact of Dobbs begin to fade, the enthusiasm gap starting to wane a little bit. So no, I don't see anything that they're saying would be different. In fact, uh, you wrote a really good column, and it, this it's not my role to praise you, Peter, on this podcast, as we know, but huh. you said when... when what, what, do you praise me in other places that I'm no, missing? No, no, never, never, never to your face, <laughs> never to your face. But you got a situation where you said it. I mean, the moment that DeSantis agreed to meet with Biden and Biden says good things about DeSantis, you could just see the wind go out of the Charlie Crist uh, campaign sales. And the problem there is not just for Charlie Crist, and it certainly is, but it's gonna it's gonna translate down ballot. You look at you look at places like Georgia, where the Warnock Walker race is just really super salient, super top top of the ticket, top of the mind, and yet down ballot, the state's still trending. Stacey Abrams stands almost no chance there, right? Uh, and so you, as you go down ballot, those trade wins matter more. So I guess that that's my point. DeSantis and Crist, you're right, Peter. It's over. Uh, even even the donors have walked away from Chris. He, he's still getting out raised three, four, five to one. Uh, but at the end of the day, the down ballot races are the ones that are going to hurt the sting the most, most likely. Um, talk to me about. I mean, you're you're you and I talk often about the uh, duality, or or I think you even say there's three pods um, in Tallahassee. There's the state government people. There's the locals. Um, and I, I forget. And then what, there's a university. And then university. there's a university. Yeah, like, ponds, yeah. It's it's interesting. You've got a competitive state Senate race in Tallahassee, which doesn't happen often. Probably the most interesting state Senate race uh, right now between Corey Simon and Loran Osley. Um, I can't imagine anybody knows that race better, the, the dynamics than you and Drew and your team. What's really going on there? 
So, uh, you know, this race shouldn't have been this way, right? But we all know the story about the first round uh, two years ago, uh, very bad ad running, tone deaf to the district, right? This is the hurricane. Well, you say this is Tallahassee. Tallahassee is only about a third of the district. You throw in gaps and we're about, it's in the 30%. The rest of it are these rural outlying areas suffering on the West End still from the ravages of Hurricane Michael. It was very hard to rebuild. You had a lot of people without insurance. You had governments without the capacity to rebuild things. And so still four years later and almost to the day, four years later, still struggling economically. Uh, so that district, uh, Loran uh, underperformed significantly uh, against the candidate. And so the Republicans said, hey, we have a chance here. They made it a little bit more Republican, uh, not a lot, uh, recruited a pretty good candidate, great profile in Corey Simon, a, you know, a hometown hero, not the best candidate, but he's certainly not a Herschel Walker. He doesn't have kind of Herschel Walker has freakish uh oddities surrounding his candidacy uh corey has none of that so i think what's happening walker is, is a donald trump candidate corey simon it, it, just to jump in here and you you see it and i wrote about it in the primary the the efforts by republicans to diversify themselves you know with you know uh they've got three black members of the house caucus now are on the way you know, working Corey Simon, working on the Cuban Hispanic vote, you know, there is, I mean, they are putting together a coalition here where Democrats, you know, you're going to see more Republican uh, black lawmakers than you're going to see, you know, somehow uh, Democratic ones. Yeah, no, well, you're not going to see more, but you're going to see, you're gonna, they're, they're going to become more common. But you're, what you're looking at here, and remember, when, you know, uh, the Pasadomo team, has far, far, far more resources for a variety of reasons than uh, the Democrats do. And so for the for the Republicans, this is a win-win for this reason. This race should have, I one could argue, should have never been in play, but it is, and that's that's where it is. They've recruited a good candidate, probably not a great candidate, but Corey's as good as you know you could probably get. A and B, the money that the Democrats have to spend here is money they can't use to go after Broder to go play it down to Miami. And if they do, they're spreading their resources too thin. So priority one always has to be protect your incumbents, right? So dollar one goes to Janet Cruz, dollar one goes to Loran Osley, dollar next goes to those other races. And so the Republicans are in a win-win situation. Even if Loran wins, it probably means that Broder comes back and the Republican wins in the open seat, the Annette Today open seat there. So that that's the larger play there. And I think it's pretty smart to have recruited a, a, a decent candidate like Corey Simon, who who could end up winning this race. Don't don't make any mistake about that. It's 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 close uh, in in both public and private polls on both sides. And uh, who knows how they break? Uh, let me put you on a uh, on the hot seat here. Is um... I'm sorry, I forgot her name. Um, who ran against Lauren in the primary? Against Lauren Book? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Barbara Sharif. Is Barbara Sharif the boogeyman, uh, the biggest boogeyman for the Florida Democrats this year? Will she? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a funny story. Maybe ironic is more better than, word than, than funny that 
when Barbara first declared, she was telling people, and I got this on very good resources, because as you know, I'm pretty connected to Broward County, that she thought Lauren got a, a, a fresh eight years. She said, I'm not willing to wait eight years. And finally, when she was told correctly that it was only a two-year seat, by then it was too late, she was already in, okay? So yeah, here's Senator Book, uh, I mean, truly doing a great job, raising money, rallying the troops. When was the last time we saw this caucus as unified as they are? Uh, getting together, agreeing on things, agreeing on the strategy on abortion, agreeing on the candidates, raising record dollars. And yet then then Barbara Sharif comes in, you know, and I, I do not believe at any level that uh, Wilton Simpson or Kathleen Pasadomo recruited re or even encouraged Barbara Sharif to get in. But the fact that she did forced uh, Book to move and to, to focus her energy and resources, because Sharif was a serious candidate. She was the former twice mayor of Broward County, a commissioner in the district, and willing and able to put a lot of money in. She had just come off a primary race where she spent a million dollars on TV. Uh, she spent a million dollars, about 800,000 on TV. So she comes to the table as a very credible opponent. I think Senator Book showed that she can, she can fight a dogfight with the best of them. I mean, went from, I think it's common knowledge, I'm not sharing any trade secrets, she started out behind and ended up crushing Sharif. But in order to do that, she had to run a very, very serious campaign, and she did. So you're right. That's item one is the leader is now distracted. And by the way, Peter, it was funny because a lot of articles said this has never happened before. That's just flat out untrue. Remember uh, Jeff Clemens, uh, uh, what's his face, Irv Schlossberg ran against him. So we Democrats have a way of uh, shooting ourselves in the foot. Did I just hear, by the way, that did Jeff Clemens move out of the state? Is that did I see that or that he left? I, I think as the last I heard, he, he was still working down. He was still working down there. But, I, I you know, it was four or five months ago. Got it. Um, uh, I know you work a lot of like or you pull a lot of uh, uh, like referendum at yeah. the county level, um, which is interesting. I think one of the overarching themes of election 2022 will be how the very Republican state passed a lot of uh, uh, tax raises on itself. Yep. Uh, yep. It will. And, and for good and reason. In, yeah. and, in, and in conservative areas. Uh, you know, what's funny, Peter, I just did a chart the other day and the ones that have failed in the past, uh, Alachua first time around, they failed two to one. Hillsborough just failed on a teacher millage fight. And there's all individual reasons for these. Broward failed two years ago. Or was it four years ago now? And the conservative counties almost are unblemished. Like it was one failure in Martin, but it had it had nothing to do with the conservative politics. And uh, there's a very specific reason for that. Uh, it's, it's close locus of control, right? Conservative counties say, we want to take care of our own. We don't want to send money to D.C. We don't want to send money to Tallahassee. We want to take care of our own and fix our own problems. We're not depending on other people. So while we find like on like on these millage increases, Democrats clearly are stronger, but Republicans are always above 50% because they want strong schools and they wanna take care of their own. They're not gonna sit there with a hand out. So yeah, we, we've passed some three in Manatee County, uh, uh, St. Lucie County. Uh, I think we're going to pass one in Brevard right now. Uh, so Bay County. So, yeah, they, they tend to pass in conservative areas. Uh, anything else down ballot that's really got you uh, got that has your attention? 
Yeah, what's what's what I find really interesting and intriguing, and this is going to be the legacy at some level of Ron DeSantis is school boards used to be these boring affairs, right? Who the hell knew who their school board members, why it mattered? Um, remember, the governor jumped into the primaries, uh, had some pretty good victories. If some of them were symbolic, some of them were very real. He did change the course of of the outcomes. He looked strong. But suddenly these school board races are becoming a big deal and uh, they're they're different. I mean, it's almost like he's picking on the kids that are not used to fighting. You get school board members raise eighteen thousand dollars, drop a piece of mail and win. Uh, those days are now behind us. Um, those things are becoming very intriguing and becoming, you know, like little house races. That's it. Yeah, they uh the Democrats, I think, have been caught flat-footed, too, also in candidate recruitment in those areas. Not that Democrats are great in candidate recruitment and other levels of campaigning, but it's just like, um, just especially like around here, like I, I see uh, really strong candidates that I would probably would have said, you should run for the state house. Like, you know, there's a candidate around here that's running for the school board. Ten years ago, they would have recruited her and ran her for the Senate or the House. Um, and now, you know, she's running for the school board because that, like you are alluding to, that's where the action is. Um, well, you well, know, it's going to be interesting about that, Peter, with it, when they get there, what they're going to find is school boards really don't have a lot of authority and power. You have a lot of Moms for Liberty types running and they're going to get on those school boards. And I'm, I'm mindful because I was representing three of them. And uh, these candidates are like, we're no longer going to teach critical race theory. And, and the current school board members are saying, we teach the state curriculum approved by Richard Corcoran and Ron DeSantis. What makes you think we're kidding? The books we're using in the classrooms are approved by the state. In fact, one school district, Brevard, had purchased a bunch of books and uh, the State Department of Education. Remember that math book that was like teaching they were doing graphs about the uh, the implicit association test and said that's critical race theory, which it's not. But they pulled the books. So the books that are being used are approved by the state. And so people are saying, oh, we're going to change. You. you guys have been teaching all these things. And they're like, we've been we're Republicans. We support the Republican administration. We've been teaching their curriculum and using their testing systems and their books. What are you talking about? So these people wouldn't get elected and finally have absolutely nothing to do. It's, so it's going to be an interesting uh, uh, post-election dynamic to watch some of these school boards and where these folks go, because these are Republican communities they're getting elected in that are already uh, not teaching the things that they say they're teaching. All right. We could do an entire pod by ourselves, but I got to I got to keep it short, you know, divide it up. I appreciate you coming on. We will check. Right, I think I'm going to be up in Tallahassee next week. So you know, maybe uh, maybe we'll do this on Usual Suspects. Uh, I got to talk to you about that. But uh, always good to talk to you. All right. Stay, Peter. OK, that was the lineup for our first uh, general election uh, episode of Hunkering Down. I'm really not hunkering down anymore. I'm probably out uh, playing tennis more than I'm hunkering down. Uh, but I don't think playing tennis with Peter Schorsch is a viable podcast title. Uh, thank you to Brad Harold. Thank you to Anthony Pedicini. Thank you to Michael Worley. Thank you to Steve Vancor. Thank you to our producers, Phil Ammon and Jay Caruso for putting this together. I hope to get another pod out next week. Stay up to date on the latest news 
at floridapolitics.com. Thank you to all our colleagues there. I'll talk to you next week.